So this paper originates as a reaction. Uh, about a year back in India, the state where the Taj Mahal is, the state government uh, excluded Taj Mahal from its tourism booklet, saying that uh, Taj Mahal does not represent Indian culture because it's of an Islamic <coughs> origin uh, made by Islamic rulers. And uh, so the, the iconic heritage site being labeled as the architecture flag bearer of Islamic rule in India. But this exclusion is also symptomatic of the primacy of classifications or architecture's scientific method. A work is identified by its style and age, its origin and author, and an objectified list of its distinguishing features. This paper presents an alternative rooted in the discourses of phenomenology that can illuminate the nature of situated human interactions more holistically and hermeneutics that can reveal the continuing relationships between works of the distant past and the always new present. To account for the booklet's missed opportunity, this paper will dwell on the tomb of the most powerful Mughal emperor Akbar at Sikandrabad. Ignored and attracting far fewer tourists, this monument recedes into relative obscurity although located within the same city. This paper argues that the medieval monument remains relevant to modern India because it incites questions of life and death, of living and dying. It claims legitimacy as a work of art, a meaningful and ongoing, ever-present human experience. The tomb of Akbar has a sense of being a place of death and being with the deceased. But it is also a sense of life and living. It makes realize the distinction of being alive and thus incites contemplation regarding not only the purpose of the construct but also morality as humans. But how? There is no definitive answer but belief that meaningful ramblings of its experience holds clues. It seems foremost that the work works best because of the sequence of spaces one encounters, culminating in the shockingly different tomb chamber. But this shocking difference is less so when one is in the situation, suggesting that the sequence somehow, subtly, seeds this surprise through its course. The monument appears beyond the parking lots as hawkers peddling intricate, locally crafted showpieces typically ornamented in the Islamic tradition. One is reminded of the exquisite geometric motifs and general ornamental qualities that identify these tombs across Agra and Delhi. The Persian ornamental tradition has been integral to artisans and craftsmen of these parts of modern India. The hawkers themselves claim that their forefathers had been craftsmen on these Mughal projects and that craft has been transmitted across generations. The Persian art has not been imported into India as structural techniques, material choices, architectural elements just, but rather their building techniques assimilated into the craft traditions of India. As one emerges across the horde of hawkers and stands in front of the monument, the work appears enclosed within a tall perimeter wall with a large entrance gate, tall enough for two elephants one on top of the other. The entry gate is similar in scale to those found in other forts and palaces of medieval India, but whereas those gates 
were that large so that elephants could pass, they seemed to have no reason to be so in a tomb. Centered on a tall wall, long enough to require a sweeping glance, this door seems to be relating to not just man but the full expanse of life, an invitation for the whole world to come in. After all, this is the adobe of a deceased being, not restricted to the dimensions of man but to the entirety of life itself. Standing in front of this, one is reminded of the scale of this vast appeal in which he is welcome to, albeit as a minuscule being he is. Situated in a rural landscape outside the city, the surrounding is a flat expanse dotted by clusters of trees far apart and village huts even further so. Cultivated fields of rice and sugarcane sway happily under the tropical heat of the sun in fields flooded with water. This is the vastness that the gates identify with and the man who has travelled across thus feels in tune with the monumentality rather than being insulted by its inhuman scale. It is revealing how modern monumental constructs are critiqued for their scale as inhuman rather than relating the anomaly to a conflict of scale with the surroundings. Once one has comprehended this expansive wall and its large gate, a flight of stairs takes him up to the plinth, where even at the landing one has to bend over to cross a very small freestanding arched portal. This portal is some way off the main gate, right at the edge of where the plinth meets the stairs. So there is no way one may enter without this bending gesture, as if bowing before the entry to this magnificence. The physical bowing of the head, mandated by the small portal, makes the human body present itself. The journey to the monument at once transforms from being a cerebral act alone to now also encompassing necessarily the physical being. An act of crossing the portal is thus marked by the body making passage through a mere door come alive to become transportation of the whole body and soul into a novel experience of the world. The work is itself making realize the significance and holiness of the world beyond, a metaphor perhaps of death but through bringing liveliness in the present life being. As one enters through the gate into the walled compound, <coughs> one finds himself in a Mughal garden. The idealized Mughal garden, also known as the Charbagh, is divided into four quadrants with the tomb at the center. The four quadrants are segregated by raised pathways such that the animals that abound in its grounds cannot reach the men walking on the pathway. Large clusters of trees in a pastoral landscape exhibit deer, monkey, squirrels, peacocks, parrots, cranes and a variety of other birds. This ideal setting is a depiction of the heavens, not realistically but as if like a drama stage, allegorical of the lived world itself. The earth reaching the sky through the trees, birds and animals. As a visitor, man walks high above them, seemingly from a privileged higher ground. But Akbar inhabits these grounds through eternity, conquered by death, denigrating mortal men from privilege to cursed seclusion. Only the dead is living eternally through this heavenly natural place, an Eden from which man has recused himself and can only make a staged setting off. 
But this is also a promise, a promise that once conquering death, he too will inhabit this holy place, under the sky, on the earth, in harmony with nature. <coughs> that this is a reminder to man of what he inherited and what his world has come to. This stage act of heaven is enacted not in a heaven above the sky and beyond the stars, but in the mortal realms of men, something that was, can be today and is possible tomorrow, only if men open their eyes and achieve this harmony as his work of art is doing. It is a commentary of man's guilt and aspirations across time and even of an individual within his lifespan. Walking along the pathway, shallow water channels follow him along the edge and the central median. Only as one approaches the crossing where the tomb is, the water channel runs across marking the end of the pathway and defining the perimeter of that tomb. Because the water channel crosses the pathway, there is a small stone piece for man to step across. This act of stepping on a stone piece to cross the water is actually what brings the water channel to present itself for the first time. As they ran alongside in the pathway, as they usually do along city streets, subtly and at the edges with minimal noise and only subconscious presence and come forth only while crossing, they seem to hint at a rhythm and flow of their own. Man's body in stepping across marks the adjustment for the unwavering water marks, it co marks its course. It is rather in sync with the harmony of this world, flowing incessantly, almost carelessly. The water seems to epitomize the passing of time and life in this world, in harmony with its being, unconcerned with the individual. It carries dead leaves swept from the pathway by the gentle breeze, echoing the rivers of India into which the Hindus deposit the ashes of their dead. Flowing water, after all, cleanses the dead of the earth ensuring smooth passage after death. Approaching the crossing, one is intrigued by the other symmetrical copies of the pathway merging. This one frame and sequence that was accessed is the only way to arrive at the tomb for a visit. And yet, there are three more that come from copies of the same entry gate, only that they do not provide access. Each of them point to a cardinal direction marking the passage of sun, the moon and the stars across the skies in day and at night. The order thus created is curious for it is for no man to live in, but rather to let man see the self-sustaining order of the cosmos he dwells in and is a part of. The order is of the world of the living that the dead still dwell in, a cosmic order the Chabag bears witness to bringing the heavens to the realms of the living once more. Travelling through the small portal archway and the main gate into the heavenly garden relating to the cosmic order of this world and the pathway up to the crossing where the tomb stands, the work has by now made realize that this might be the idealized world of the dead, but it still conforms to the world by conforming to the cosmic order. A novel phenomena still within the lived world as man's mortality is part of life. As one walks down the pathway, the tomb appears amongst the trees as a multi-story structure built of red sandstone at the lower stories 
gradually giving way to much frailer upper stories, receding from the edge like the pyramidal mountain form and in increasing dominance of white Makrana marble constitution. The ground floor is distinctly taller than the upper floors and is horizontally expansive, a quality accentuated by the repeated, repetitive pointed arched portals carved into its mass. This arched frame views frame views of the garden from the peripheral veranda screened by white marble jalis. The central bay of the ground floor is distinguished by a large arched frame containing the dark door to the interiors. As with the other portals, this arch is carved into the solid mass, but the frame itself projects out. Facing south, the sun and the moon shine on its face throughout the year, every day and night, accentuating its presence by the play of light and shade in the features and intricacies of the jalis. Approaching this entry, the upper story which recede away from the face no longer appear and the door focuses the tension of in and out of the massive but porous wall. Removing shoes to enter a sacred place is a custom in India like most eastern countries irrespective of religion. The removing of footwear and wearing barefoot initiates bodily contact with the floor to form a unique covenant of trust and respect with the hello place and with the many strangers who have, are and will share this bond. It is a communal ritual that every visitor join in, joins in, uniting humanity irrespective of religion, caste, ethnicity, nationality and status, a quality that Akbar identifies with and the threshold to his tomb enshrines. Crossing the threshold, a profusely ornate and colorful antechamber presents itself. The ornate antechamber is separated from the outside by the jali wall that filters light, letting the breeze flow in, bringing with it the smells and sounds of nature outside. As such, the garden outside continues to present itself inside. The filtered light of the jalis appear as threads of luminance that mark the passage of sun and moon across the sky. In doing so, the sky and its cosmic bodies are brought to presence themselves even within this otherwise heavy stereotomic chamber. This connection that the Jali wall achieves to make with the outside and inside, even as a visual connection is obscured per se, is instructive of an alternate way for contemporary architecture that obsesses with finding the largest piece of expensive glass to connect outdoor and indoor space visually. The colourful ornamentation that adorn the wall and the ceiling are typical of tombs in Agra and Delhi. First, the walls are completely plastered in lime stucco and painted in segments as required. The interstices of the floral pattern are then carved out to make the pattern come forth from the rendered surface not as an embellishment. This brightly coloured abstracted floral depiction shine in the light brought in by the jali and help increase the diffuse illumination. Beyond this, the pattern on plastered wall complements those of the jali and make the totality of the room from floor to walls to the ceiling completely ornate. The liveliness of the room, enlightened by the formalized rays of the sun and made happy by the bright coloration, indicate a joyous rich sense reeking of comfort and abundance, of riches and royalty. 
Moreover, the abstraction in the geometric lines of the jali and its imprint of the same on the sun's rays, together with the designed floral patterns, hint at the skill and veracity that makes man a unique being. Perhaps indicative of being in vicinity of a remarkable individual that one already knows to be enshrined in this tomb. In its color and richness, the emperority of Akbar's mortal life is eternally celebrated in this antechamber. Access to the tomb chamber itself is through a narrow tunnel descending to a level below. Lacking any lateral openings, the corridor is illit. As one enters the corridor, the restricted space makes the body conscious and the hands stay close. The downward slope lets know that one is descending into the earth into an underworld cave. The diminishing light is associated with the disappearance of the sky, an unworldly experience making the journey mysterious and fearful. A certain trust and obedience is required, adhering to an authority that seems menacing but presently benevolent. The thick walls on either side allow no sound from outside and the hurried footsteps along the stone floor is hushed as the naked feet cautiously navigates the strange sloping ramp. Emerging from the constricted tunnel, a square room with a pointed dome ceiling presents itself. There are no ornaments here as the walls and ceilings are rendered in white lime plastering. A single small opening high above where the wall meets the ceiling is the only source of light for this dimly lit chamber. Lacking any connections to the outside otherwise, one feels entrapped and buried into the earth. The knowledge of the vast multi-story monument seen earlier lingers on and causes anxiety knowing the enormous weight these ceilings and walls must be carrying. All this suggests a cautious outlook, the sole consolation being the presence of the white cenotaph at the center of the chamber, unharmed across centuries. A single caretaker guards the cenotaph, minding people to keep a safe distance and not touch the cenotaph. As such, visitors make an ambulatory file around in a single file ought to silence by the strangeness of the place. It is important to understand how this silence is not a reaction to any bombastic statement or image delivered in an instance. Rather, from the very beginning, the whole bodily experience was made has made the being more sensitive. The potentials for comprehending experience is explored by the character of the spaces encountered, setting the mood for contemplating meaning not only in the architecture and its poetics, but of life and man in general, secure in the paradisical environment the charbagh provides. Even as one emerges from the tomb chamber back into the garden, he lingers on. They sit, roam about, walk without a definite objective whereas such behavior would be termed confused and crazy in daily city life, this wandering about is perfectly natural within the walls of Akbar's tomb, passing by without question. Even if for a moment, adult and children transcend age and commune as listless beings, playing and being gay just like the deer and monkeys and the birds surrounding them. The happiness coming of meaningful contemplation of daily life the architecture provides the respite and setting for the tomb of the dead becoming the place to celebrate mortal lives beautiful and bountiful offerings thank you